Section 10 of Eliah and the Last Essays of Eliah. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Cullum. Eliah and the Last Essays of Eliah by Charles Lamb. The Old and the New Schoolmaster. My reading has been lamentably desultory and immethodical. Odd, out of the way, old English plays and treatises have supplied me with most of my notions and ways of feeling. In everything that relates to science, I am a whole encyclopedia behind the rest of the world. I should have scarcely cut a figure among the Franklins or country gentlemen in King John's days. I know less geography than a schoolboy of six weeks standing. To me, a map of old Ortelius is as authentic as Arrowsmith. I do not know whereabout Africa merges into Asia, whether Ethiopia lie in one or other of those great divisions, nor can form the remotest conjecture of the position of New South Wales or Van Diemen's Land. Yet do I hold a correspondence with a very dear friend in the first named of these two terrae incogniti. I have no astronomy. I do not know where to look for the bear or Charles's Wayne, the place of any star or the name of any of them at sight. I guess at Venus only by her brightness, and if the sun on some portentous morn were to make his first appearance in the west, I verily believe that, while all the world were gasping in apprehension about me, I alone should stand unterrified from sheer incuriosity and want of observation. Of history and chronology I possess some vague points, such as one cannot help picking up in the course of miscellaneous study, but I never deliberately sat down to a chronicle, even of my own country. I have most dim apprehensions of the four great monarchies, and sometimes the Assyrian, sometimes the Persian, floats as first in my fancy. I make the widest conjectures concerning Egypt and her shepherd kings. My friend M, with great painstaking, got me to think I understood the first proposition in Euclid, but gave me over in despair at the second. I am entirely unacquainted with the modern languages, and like a better man than myself, have small Latin and less Greek. I am a stranger to the shapes and texture of the commonest trees, herbs, flowers. Not from the circumstance of my being town-born, for I should have brought the same inobservant spirit into the world with me, had I first seen it on Devon's leafy shores and am no less at a loss among purely town objects, tools, engines, mechanic processes. Not that I affect ignorance, but my head has not many mansions, nor spacious, and I have been obliged to fill it with such cabinet curiosities as it can hold without aching. I sometimes wonder how I have passed my probation with so little discredit in the world, as I have done upon so meagre a stock. 
but the fact is a man may do very well with a very little knowledge and scarce be found out in mixed company everybody is so much more ready to produce his own than to call for a display of your acquisitions but in a tete-a-tete there is no shuffling the truth will out there is nothing which i dread so much as the being left alone for a quarter of an hour with a sensible well-informed man that does not know me i lately got into a dilemma of this sort in one of my daily jaunts between bishopsgate and shacklewell the coach stopped to take up a staid-looking gentleman about the wrong side of thirty who was giving his parting directions while the steps were adjusting in a tone of mild authority to a tall youth who seemed to be neither his clerk his son nor his servant but something partaking of all three the youth was dismissed and we drove on as we were the sole passengers he naturally enough addressed his conversation to me and we discussed the merits of the fare the civility and punctuality of the driver the circumstances of an opposition coach having been lately set up with the probabilities of its success to all which i was enabled to return pretty satisfactory answers having been drilled into this kind of etiquette by some years daily practice of riding to and fro in the stage aforesaid when he suddenly alarmed me by a startling question whether i had seen the show of prize cattle that morning in smithfield now as i had not seen it and do not greatly care for such sort of exhibitions i was obliged to return a cold negative he seemed a little mortified as well as astonished at my declaration as it appeared he was just come fresh from the site and doubtless had hoped to compare notes on the subject however he assured me that i had lost a fine treat as it far exceeded the show of last year we were now approaching norton folgate when the sight of some shop goods ticketed freshened him up into a dissertation upon the cheapness of cottons this spring i was now a little in heart as the nature of my morning avocations had brought me into some sort of familiarity with the raw material and i was surprised to find how eloquent i was becoming on the state of the india market when presently he dashed my incipient vanity to the earth at once by inquiring whether i had ever made any calculation as to the value of the rental of all the retail shops in london had he asked of me what song the sirens sang or what name achilles assumed when he hid himself among women i might with sir thomas brown have hazarded a wide solution my companion saw my embarrassment and the almshouses beyond shoreditch just coming into view with great good nature and dexterity shifted his conversation to the subject of public charities which led to the comparative merits of provision for the poor in past and present times with observations on the old monastic institutions and charitable orders but finding me rather dimly impressed with some glimmering notions from old poetic associations than strongly fortified with any speculations reducible to calculation on the subject 
he gave the matter up, and the country beginning to open more and more upon us as we approached the turnpike at Kingsland, the destined termination of his journey, he put a home thrust upon me in the most unfortunate position he could have chosen by advancing some queries relative to the North Pole expedition. While I was muttering out something about the panorama of those strange regions, which I had actually seen by way of parrying the question, the coach stopping relieved me from any further apprehensions. My companion getting out left me in the comfortable possession of my ignorance, and I heard him as he went off, putting questions to an outside passenger who had alighted with him regarding an epidemic disorder that had been rife about Dalston, and which, my friend assured him, had gone through five or six schools in that neighbourhood. The truth now flashed upon me that my companion was a schoolmaster, and that the youth, whom he had parted from at our first acquaintance, must have been one of the bigger boys, or the usher. He was evidently a kind-hearted man, who did not seem so much desirous of provoking discussion by the questions which he put, as of obtaining information at any rate. It did not appear that he took any interest either in such kind of inquiries, for their own sake, but that he was in some way bound to seek for knowledge. A greenish-coloured coat which he had on forbade me to surmise that he was a clergyman. The adventure gave birth to some reflections on the difference between persons of his profession in past and present times. Rest to the souls of those fine old pedagogues, the breed long since extinct, of the lilies and the linacres, who, believing that all learning was contained in the languages which they taught, and despising every other acquirement as superficial and useless, came to their task as to a sport. Passing from infancy to age, they dreamed away all their days as in a grammar school, revolving in a perpetual cycle of declensions, conjugations, syntaxes and prosodies, renewing constantly the occupations which had charmed their studious childhood, rehearsing continually the part of the past life must have slipped from them at last like one day. They were always in their first garden, reaping harvests of their golden time among their florae and their specii legia in Arcadia still, but kings, the ferule of their sway not much harsher, but of like dignity with that mild sceptre attributed to King Basilius, the Greek and Latin, their stately Pamela and their Philoclea, with the occasional duncery of some untoward tyro, serving for a refreshing interlude of a mopsa or a clown, Damatus. With what a savour did the preface to Colette's, or, as it is sometimes called, Paul's accidents, set forth. To exhort every man to the learning of grammar, that intendeth to attain the understanding of the tongues, wherein is contained a great treasury of wisdom and knowledge. It would seem but vain and lost labour, for so much as it is known, that nothing can surely be ended 
whose beginning is either feeble or faulty, and no building be perfect, whereas the foundation and groundwork is ready to fall and unable to uphold the burden of the frame. How well doth this stately preamble, comparable to those which Milton commendeth, as having been the usage to prefix to some solemn law, then first promulgated by Solon or Lycurgus, correspond with and illustrate but pious zeal for conformity expressed in a succeeding clause which would fence about grammar rules with the severity of faith articles. As for the diversity of grammars, it is well profitably taken away by the King Majesty's wisdom, who, foreseeing the inconvenience and favourably providing the remedy, caused one kind of grammar by sundry learned men to be diligently drawn, and so to be set out, only everywhere to be taught for the use of learners, and for the hurt in changing of schoolmasters. What a gusto in that which follows, wherein it is profitable that he can orderly decline his noun and his verb, his noun. The fine dream is fading away fast, and the least concern of a teacher in the present day is to inculcate grammar rules. The modern schoolmaster is expected to know a little of everything, because his pupil is required not to be entirely ignorant of anything. He must be superficially, if I may so say, omniscient. He is to know something of pneumatics, of chemistry, of whatever is curious or proper to excite the attention of the youthful mind. An insight into mechanics is desirable, with a touch of statistics, the quality of soils, and botany. The constitution of his country, cum multis alias, you may get a notion of some part of his expected duties by consulting the famous tractate on education addressed to Mr. Hartlib. All these things, these or the desire of them, he is expected to instil, not by set lessons from professors, which he may charge in the bill, but at school intervals as he walks the streets or saunters through green fields, those natural instructors with his pupils. The least part of what is expected from him is to be done in school hours. He must insinuate knowledge at bemolia tempora fandi. He must seize every occasion, the season of the year, the time of the day, a passing cloud, a rainbow, a wagon of hay, a regiment of soldiers going by, to inculcate something useful. He can receive no pleasure from a casual glimpse of nature, but must catch at it as an object of instruction. He must interpret beauty into the picturesque. He cannot relish a beggar man or a gypsy for thinking of the suitable improvement. Nothing comes to him, not spoiled by the sophisticating medium of moral uses. The universe, that great book as it has been called, is to him indeed, to all intents and purposes, a book out of which he is doomed to read tedious homilies to distasting schoolboys. 
vacations themselves are none to him. He is only rather worse off than before, for commonly he has some intrusive upper boy fastened upon him at such times, some cadet of a great family, some neglected lump of nobility or gentry that he must drag after him to the play, to the panorama, to Mr. Bartley's orrery, to the panopticon or into the country, to a friend's house or to his favourite watering place. Wherever he goes, this uneasy shadow attends him. A boy is at his board and in his path and in all his movements. He is boy-rid, sick of perpetual boy. Boys are capital fellows in their own way among their mates, but they are unwholesome companions for grown people. The restraint is felt no less on the one side than on the other. Even a child that plaything for an hour tires always the noises of children playing their own fancies as i now hearken to them by fits sporting on the green before my window while i am engaged in these grave speculations at my neat suburban retreat at shacklewell by distance made more sweet inexpressibly take from the labour of my task it is like writing to music they seem to modulate my periods. They ought at least to do so, for in the voice of that tender age there is a kind of poetry, far unlike the harsh, prose accents of man's conversation. I should but spoil their sport and diminish my own sympathy for them by mingling in their pastime. I would not be domesticated all my days with a person of very superior capacity to my own, not if i know myself at all from any considerations of jealousy or self-comparison for the occasional communion with such minds has constituted the fortune and felicity of my life but the habit of too constant intercourse with spirits above you instead of raising you keeps you down too frequent doses of original thinking from others restrain what lesser portion of that faculty you may possess of your own. You get entangled in another man's mind, even as you lose yourself in another man's grounds. You are walking with a tall varlet whose strides outpace yours to lassitude. The constant operation of such potent agency would reduce me I am convinced, to imbecility. You may derive thoughts from others. Your way of thinking, the mould in which your thoughts are cast, must be your own. Intellect may be imparted, but not each man's intellectual frame. As little as I should wish to be always thus dragged upwards, as little, or rather still less, is it desirable to be stunted downwards by your associates. The trumpet does not more stun you by its loudness than a whisper teases you by its provoking inaudibility. Why are we never quite at ease in the presence of a schoolmaster? Because we are conscious that he is not quite at his ease in ours. He is awkward and out of place in the society of his equals, he comes like Gulliver from among his little people, and he cannot fit the stature of his understanding to yours. He cannot meet you on the square. 
He wants a point given him, like an indifferent whist player. He is so used to teaching that he wants to be teaching you. One of these professors, upon my complaining that these little sketches of mine were anything but methodical, and that I was unable to make them otherwise, kindly offered to instruct me in the method by which young gentlemen in his seminary were taught to compose English themes. The jests of a schoolmaster are coarse or thin. They do not tell out of school. He is under the restraint of a formal and didactive hypocrisy in company, as a clergyman is under a moral one. He can no more let his intellect loose in society than the other can his inclinations. He is forlorn among his co-equals. His juniors cannot be his friends. I take blame to myself, said a sensible man of this profession, writing to a friend respecting a youth who had quitted his school abruptly, that your nephew was not more attached to me, but persons in my situation are more to be pitied than can well be imagined. We are surrounded by young and consequently ardently affectionate hearts, but we can never hope to share an atom of their affections. The relation of master and scholar forbids this. How pleasing this must be to you! How I envy your feelings! My friends will sometimes say to me, when they see young men whom I have educated, return after some years' absence from school, their eyes shining with pleasure, while they shake hands with their old master, bringing a present of game to me, or a toy to my wife, and thanking me in the warmest terms for my care of their education. A holiday is begged for the boys, the house is a scene of happiness. I only am sad at heart. This fine-spirited and warm-hearted youth, who fancies he repays his master with gratitude for the care of his boyish years, this young man, in the eight long years I watched over him with a parent's anxiety, never could repay me with one look of genuine feeling. He was proud when I praised, he was submissive when I reproved him, but he did never love me, and what he now mistakes for gratitude and kindness for me is but the pleasant sensation which all persons feel at revisiting the scene of their boyish hopes and fears, and the seeing on equal terms the man they were accustomed to look up to with reverence. My wife, too, this interesting correspondent goes on to say, my once darling Anna is the wife of a schoolmaster. When I married her, knowing that the wife of a schoolmaster ought to be a busy, notable creature, and fearing that my gentle Anna would ill-supply the loss of my dear, bustling mother, just then dead, who never sat still, was in every part of the house in a moment, and whom I was obliged sometimes to threaten to fasten down in a chair to save her from fatiguing herself to death, I expressed my fears that I was bringing her into a way of life unsuitable to her, and she, who loved me tenderly, promised for my sake to exert herself to perform the duties of her new situation. She promised, and she has kept her word. What wonders will not woman's love perform? My house is managed with a propriety and decorum unknown in other schools. My boys are well fed, 
look healthy and have every proper accommodation, and all this performed with a careful economy that never descends to meanness. But I have lost my gentle, helpless Anna. When we sit down to enjoy an hour of repose after the fatigue of the day, I am compelled to listen to what have been her useful, and they are really useful, employments through the day, and what she proposes for her tomorrow's task. Her heart and her features are changed by the duties of her situation. To the boys, she never appears other than the master's wife, and she looks up to me as the boy's master, to whom all show of love and affection would be highly improper and unbecoming the dignity of her situation and mine. Yet this my gratitude forbids me to hint to her. For my sake she submitted to be this altered creature, and can I reproach her for it? For the communication of this letter I am indebted to my cousin Bridget. End of section 10